here on, on uh, microeconomic reform uh, over the period. We've seen improvements in banking and insolvency code. So the direction is stronger in India, but there is still, I guess, some unconscious bias that exists outside of India about you know corruption uh, being endemic within the corporate sector, um, you know vested interests too tied to politics, etc. So the Adani news sort of brings that back into the, the forefront and, and uh, re-highlights those that see it as, a, as an endemic problem in India. Um, so, yes, it has an, uh, an overall impact on the, on the market, not specific to Adani, and it plays to that unconscious bias that probably exists still to some extent within the, the foreign investment community about India's corporate governance, uh, where I would say from my experience has improved enormously, but there's still a fair way to go. Toby, thank you very much indeed for that, and have a good weekend. That's Toby Lawson as director at Staten Advice. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at how markets in Asia Pacific are performing uh, this morning. In Australia, the ASX 200 is up about 0.4%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up a third of percent. Uh, The Cosby in South Korea is down off about 0.2%. And futures markets are pointing to a decline of about 170 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Thank you very much for listening this morning. I'll be back on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Stay tuned to Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy with sunny intervals. One or two rain patches later, maximum temperature is going to be about 22 degrees. And then the outlook is for it to be windier and cool with one or two rain patches in the next couple of days. Temperature right now, uh, 17 degrees, 78% relative humidity. There is a strong monsoon signal in force this morning. With the news, here's Barry O'Rourke. A hospitality management expert says he hopes the government will initially focus on attracting mainland tourists when giving out the 500,000 free air tickets announced by Chief Executive John Lee yesterday. Raymond Sue from the Caritas Institute of Higher Education was commenting after the launch of the Hello Hong Kong campaign. He noted that before the pandemic, over 80% of the tourists in Hong Kong came from the mainland. He says even with the relaxation of COVID measures, it'll be hard for the sector to return to pre-pandemic levels this year. So officials should prioritise short-haul tourism. It should be a worldwide campaign because the tourist market cannot heavily rely on only one or two markets. So I think the government or the Hong Kong Tourism Board, according to the number of arrivals, they will invest in resources accordingly. It may take some time to promote the long-haul market, so probably for priority, they would put in the China market and also the Asian market as well. A high-profile prisoner held at Guantanamo Bay has been resettled in Belize. Majid Khan, a Pakistani citizen who went to school in the U.S., had admitted working with al-Qaeda and later turned U.S. government informer. The BBC's Nada Torfik has more. Majid Khan attended school in the U.S. state of Maryland, but after the September 11th attacks, he returned to Pakistan to join al-Qaeda. He was captured in Karachi in 2003 and tortured at a CIA black site. He was waterboarded, raped, deprived of food and sleep, and hung from his hands naked for days. This went on for three years, despite admitting early on to what he had done until he was transferred to Guantanamo Bay. 
The British company Shell has become the latest oil and gas giant to post record profits as UK households struggle to pay their energy bills. Shell made 40 billion US dollars last year after Russia's war in Ukraine sent prices soaring. Opposition parties in Britain are demanding the government impose a much higher windfall tax on the company, although 95% of Shell's earnings come from outside the UK. Rachel Reeves is the opposition Labour Party spokeswoman on the economy. It is just wrong that companies like Shell are making billions and billions of profits at the same time that people are experiencing huge energy bills, many of which they just frankly can't pay. And that's why we've said that we would extend the uh, windfall tax and ensure that companies like Shell, but others as well, pay their fair share of tax. And finally, a convicted Italian mafia killer on the run since 2006 has been caught in France after hiding in plain sight as a pizza chef for at least three years. Edgardo Greco's capture in Saint-Étienne follows the arrest of another senior mafia figure, Matteo Messina Denaro, last month. He had been on the run for 30 years when he was detained on a visit to a cancer clinic in Sicily. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Back at Friday, February the 3rd, 2023. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Long. Today we're talking about data equity in Hong Kong. The latest figures show more than 12,000 homes are now worth less than more than 533 cases at the end of September and 55 at the end of June. The increase in the cost of borrowing is among the many factors putting pressure on property owners. The Monetary Authority raised its lending rate by 25 basis points on Thursday, in line with the U.S. Federal Reserve and its warning that lending rates may continue to rise. Hong Kong has been here before and it never looks good. After 9.15 a.m., we'll speak to the Equal Opportunities Commission about possible anti-discrimination law violations against COVID-positive people visiting restaurants and clinics. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And getting into the topic today, we first would like to welcome in our downtown studio, Nelson Wong, Executive Director of Research at JLL. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm very, doing very well. Good to have you on the show. Uh, we'd like to also welcome Gary Ng, who's an economist with Natixis. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Hi. Hey, good to have you on. Uh, As well, uh, the head of valuation and advisory services at Collier's joining us is Hannah Chong. Uh, Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. All right. Uh, Hannah Chong, underwater people are uh, people's values of the properties is falling below what they uh, what they owe on it. Um, How big a problem of this? Um, currently, the latest figure showing the negative equity value mortgage reached about 12,000 cases. Um, this looks a very big jump compared to the last quarter because it's about 22 times a higher number. But if we look at the worst scenario in 2003, June, at that moment, our case was 106,000. And that's approximately 22% of the total mortgage borrower. So this big jump and the last latest quarter, uh, 2022, looks very serious. But if we look at the overall figure, it's only 2% of the total mortgage borrowers. So it doesn't really give a similar impact or seriousness as 2003, June. But um, uh, this is the increasing negative equity number is still concerning. 
Mm. And do you have numbers going all the way back to 1997, 98, when we had the Asian financial crisis? Uh, I think the, the latest figure, uh, the, the, the serious figure was the 2003 when we had uh, SARS. Okay. So, so we're thinking that the SARS is kind of the, the, uh, the, the measure of the worst of all time. Correct. Okay. Uh, Nelson, are you on board with that? Uh, certainly. Um, also, we, we need to be reminded that by 2003, Hong Kong has gone through a almost seven years of downturn in, in prices. Um, 50% drop in 27 uh, uh, sorry 1997 and 1998 and then five years of consecutive decline between 1999 and 2003 uh, just about 10% each year so basically most borrowers who engage in mortgages during those years many of those uh, as Hannah pointed out many of those uh, are in negative territories because uh, prices just keep kept drawing, uh, dropping. And um, this rapid increase over the last quarter in terms of negative, negative equity is not a very surprising development um, because prices have dropped quite sharply in the last quarter of, the, of, the, uh, of 2022. And therefore, you know, um, negative equity is simply a computational result. Um, prices drop that uh, the the equity isn't sufficient to cover the the mortgage you become negative equity i think the impact is more psychological than actual uh, at this point in time all right mr wong you're saying that uh, negative equity this uh, situation is not a surprise but uh, looking forward i mean with uh, um property prices uh i don't know falling right now do you expect this uh, problem to worsen um I do expect that to continue for some time um, because, uh, after all, we are still facing pretty high interest rate, at least compared to the past five or six years or so, uh, and it's likely to stay elevated, although signs are that they will not go a lot higher from here on. Um, so that that's one, one issue that uh, many borrowers are, or many buyers are still uh, going to uh, give a lot of consideration about when they make any purchasing decision. Um, so market is still likely to stay rather soft, uh, maybe not as poor as last year, but um, uh, it will, it will, uh, we, we're still rather cautious about the, the development in, in terms of prices this year. All right, so you expect the uh, negative equity uh, situation to worsen a, a bit more. Um, how much, how, how much worse? It's hard to tell. It's all depend, it all depends on how fast price um, will, will drop in, uh, in, in the coming quarters or so. Um, as you can see, uh, prices dropped almost 7-8% in the last quarter of last year and all of a sudden um, the number of negative equity uh, uh, went up you know, by more than 20 times. Um, and if that continues to happen, so 15% uh, last year, in terms of price drop, if it drops another five, maybe seven, eight percent in the first half of this year, um, pretty much anyone who borrowed uh, up to eighty percent in the last couple of years would have dropped below, uh, would, would have become negative equity, um, and and uh, uh, we, you know that that's how how it is going to be calculated. Gary, I have to go to the, that uh, you know that that uh, timeless question from the uh, famous newscaster Kent Brockman. Economist, is now the time for everyone to panic? 
Well, um, I think um, if we look at that uh, from that angle, right, one of the things that people look at is always the interest rate when we, uh, I mean, uh, look at the property market nowadays. So I think indeed the general uh, market is actually embracing a further adjustment. Um, but I think the good news, of course, is that we are heading towards like the end of the uh, uh, interest rate hiking cycle. So even though there may be another, you know, 25 basis point in Hong Kong, then at least we are getting to the end. But still, um, I think um, there will be, uh, you know, further adjustment and the key change comparing right now versus, you know, uh, many years ago is that, I mean, in many markets, including Hong Kong, uh, there are different type of, you know, regulations being in place. And maybe now it's the time for the government to actually, you know, consider, considering, you know, fine-tuning some of this, uh, you know, policy. So this is, I think, the positive side that we have nowadays compared to the past. So, I mean, we've got a budget coming up and you're, you're talking about changes in regulatory policy. Do, do you, I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, minimum down payment requirements on mortgages, different taxes. Uh, are you are you are you making recommendations, or have you seen kind of directional uh, intent on the part of the government to change regulations? Maybe going into the, bu- the next budget cycle to uh, either either prop up the property market or keep people from getting into trouble. Um, well, I think definitely um, there's certainly more room for the government to uh, adjust that policy right now because we already seen like a fifteen percent. Um, like a decline last year, and it's possible to see, I mean, as much as 10% uh, this year as well, then it will reach a certain point that the government will need to consider, consider you know, lifting some of these um, measures. So I think it's possible to see some adjustment to the uh, stamp duty, but um, of course um, it depends on, you know, how aggressive uh, the government would want to, um, you know, push for this uh, price because it's always this balance between the uh, housing affordability versus, you know, uh, like, like basically um, where the prices are, are too high, etc. So, um, yes, I think uh, for the stamp duty, there's some room to work on. And even, I mean, uh, the government may actually have different scheme in, you know, helping uh, like the first home buyers to actually uh, get into the market. But I think in the long run, uh, if uh, the government hasn't uh, really find a way to actually support, you know, the prices, even with all of this, it's possible to see more flexible arrangement in terms of different uh, investment scheme uh, into Hong Kong. All right. Mr. Wong, do you you, uh, support what uh, Mr. Ng was saying? I mean, is now a good time for the government to ease uh, the property cooling measures? Well, I I totally agree with Gary. And um, uh, we've we've been saying that for quite a while. Uh, For me, the punitive stamp duties is a a matter of principle, policy principle, um, because those were considered counter-cyclical measures when they were first um, uh, promulgated. And well, obviously, the the cycle right now is on the on the down, and therefore, you know, I I don't see those um, measures to be relevant anymore at this point. So I I certainly think that um, uh, the government should start to consider uh, allowing the market to become normal again um, with all these so-called uh, demand measures, contr- demand control measures. I I don't think uh, the market is is operating in. Any, uh, it, it, uh, normally at all. All right, and like what Andrew just mentioned, uh, the, the budget is coming up uh, in a few weeks' time. What would you like to see from the uh, financial secretary? Well, I, I think uh, first, um, considering these uh, or, or relaxing some of these uh, stamp duties is is a first uh, is a good first step. Um, doesn't sound like it's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, but um, uh, I, I think. You know, even if we don't start to do anything, at least uh, the government should start to consider um, 
uh, when they, they should be should be um, uh, facing such measures out of the uh, uh, out. Yep, Hannah. Hannah uh, thoughts on thoughts on the budget, taxation, changes to regulations. I think stamp duty. We have a voice out a lot from the private sector. In my opinion, both buyers and stamp duty and double stamp duty are somewhat protecting domestic buyers because that's more imposing to the second homeowners or uh, foreign owners. Um, so what I think government should consider is really removal of a special stamp duty, which is controlling the holding period. The negative equity situation is coming. People bought last three years with a high leverage, and then valuation uh, has came down. Um, these people, they actually want to sell, but the price went down, and if they sell within three years, they will lose more money. So even high financial pressure, they're holding up those houses. And if this SEM duty goes away, which is a special SEM duty, then it will be, uh, it will be helping the cycling the, the, the money and they give less pressure to the domestic players. Yeah, and, and this this pressure that people are coming under. I remember 2003. One of the problems that a lot of people had taken out margin calls to play the stock market, and their loans were based on the value of their properties. And when mm-hmm. the value of those properties dropped, and the banks started to see that people were getting into negative equity positions, the banks started calling in those loans, saying, "Oh, yeah. read the fine print. You know, you drop below this value, we can call in the whole loan at once." And a lot of people were were you know that's where they really got slaughtered, where they had to you know, panic sell a property and, you know, it's like, and now they're going to get that extra kick of like tax because they're selling it within three years. Is it possible to see that kind of uh, contagion spreading out? Are people with loans backed by property values going to get caught out again? I think banks are extremely conservative right now, um, at at least the first first half of 2023. But I think the financial system now is much mature than back then. So we, I, I believe the bank will not really aggressively call up those loans, and they will give a sufficient buffer to um, the, the homeowners to sell or exercise their loan properly. So we don't really see those kind of backfire sales coming up quickly, but I think surely the banks are really conservative at this moment. I mean, the get- new loans are more difficult at this moment, yeah. Right. Gary, Gary uh, could you see something that might change the positioning of the banks? I mean, Hannah's saying they're not going to be too aggressive about calling these loans in. But, I mean, if the banks got into trouble, uh, you know, this, yeah. is, this is where we start to see that kind of <laughs> panic. Um, I think at this uh, juncture, I feel there's a, not a very high chance for banks to actually call this loan because, um, I mean, uh, if we look at different leverage, leverage ratio, of course, right now we're talking about in this few years, there may be some... Uh, but in general, compared to 2003 or even before, right, like the leverage ratio in Hong Kong is actually not as high as before in general. So therefore, I think for the whole financial system itself, that risk is not excessively high. And even if we're talking about individual borrower, I feel uh, the banks may adopt like, you know, a flat, more flexible uh, way of dealing with all this um, problem. So I feel um, this should not be a problem unless, you know, we're talking about scenario that property prices will drop by, you know, 20, 30 percent and other, uh, I mean, uh, additional uh, job. But I think, um, like, this is quite unlikely at this point. Mm. And, and how about people that are depending on rents on their second, third, their investment properties? They're, they're depending on the rents from their tenants right now to pay those mortgages. Mortgages are going up. Are they going to be put into a stress situation? Um, indeed, 
I think they have been uh, quite stressful in the past two to three years um, because of we, we of course we need to acknowledge that there are certain cap, uh, I mean uh, people outflow from Hong Kong and then we also see the economy is not doing that well so usually this is more related to rents because uh, it's also related to the vacancy rate as well but I do think that as Hong Kong starts to reopen even though um, we we still see that uh, uh, like uh, pressure from the high interest rate but the rental market should actually uh, be better because at least there should be more demand for people, you know, uh, living in this, this space. So I do think the worst is probably over for um, like uh, like like the um, investor who probably uh, rely on rental income for you know financing the second of properties. But of course, the high interest rate will still be uh, you know a problem if they need to service their mortgage. But from the rental income side, I think they will see uh, you know a, a lower stress uh, this year. Nelson, are you you're the uh, the direct you're the main man for research at JLL? Are you are you on board with that analysis? Are you thinking that you know people are going to be able to a have people renting the properties, b the rents are going to continue to keep up with rising mortgage rates, or is there is there a disconnect there? Like if your mortgage does your mortgage rate go up faster than you can raise rents if somebody's locked into a two year lease? Well, uh, rent rental rates uh, over the past couple of years have been relatively more uh, stable. Mm. Compared to prices, um, it it did drop, but the the magnitude is somewhat less serious than than price, at least in, over the past twelve months or so. Um, partly that's because rents are quite sticky, um, and uh, you know rental contracts are typically one to two years residential anyway. Mm. Um, uh, I I totally agree. the The fact that the rents uh, or rates being higher over the last really six months or so uh, that has hurt um, a number of uh, uh, property owners who rent their properties um, uh, for for income um, there probably they might have positive carry before uh, now it's probably negative but negative carry is not a new thing in Hong Kong um, uh, rental income is for a very long time in the past uh, below uh, the, the the interest expenses on, on mortgages uh, it's really only in the last few years when um, interest rates was exceptionally low when when we saw uh, positive uh, rental carry for residential um, um, I think even when there is negative carry, the, the burden on most owners is not going to be all that excessive. Um, and um, given the, the fact that the employment situation, the business environment, although it's not too, you know, not, not um, all, all that uh, robust at this point, um, we're, we're looking um, to a somewhat better year than, than last year. Yeah. And therefore, I, I think, I think uh, uh, the situation is not, going to be uh, all that uh, gloomy going forward. And Hannah, are you on board with that, with that evaluation that people are going to be able to keep their, their rents uh, high enough to, to cover the mortgages by and large? Or, or is there, is there gradual granularity in that? Are there weak spots at the, the mid part of the market, the higher end of the market, the lower end of the market? Are some, some levels better suited than others to, to uh, mm -hmm. deal with this? I think... Yeah, I think the interest rate high last year was quite rapid, and that caused a lot of the home uh, mortgages, uh, mortgages they pay extra the eight thousand onwards per month, mm. and the rent didn't really able to cover them all, and you can't increase the rent significantly. And we had those talent drainage last year, so the rental market was quite weak. But I think government tried to put, bring back those talent back. I think. We do have a 
inquiries coming from China, so mainland Chinese talent coming back to Hong Kong, as well as the overseas talent coming back. So I think there will be some positive synergy from policy perspective, how they want to easen up the visa and encourage more to come in. So the second half of this year, we are looking at rental market will be more positive growth. Despite the price, we still face the negative minus five um, uh, trend. Mm. And does this create opportunities in the market for people that you know can take advantage of the situation? If more people are dumping their properties, um, whether it's big corporate players that want to get a portfolio in Hong Kong, uh, people maybe can you know, buy people that are in distress so they can finish, uh, you know, kind of hit the threshold for redeveloping a building. Are, are there opportunities like that coming into play because of the negative equ equity situation? Yeah, I think those institutional, they're looking at the good deals. So um, they are closely working with the banks, whether there's any non-performing loans they can acquire at once as a big portfolio, not necessarily only residential, but also other commercial uh, property types or industrial types. So that, that's ongoing exercise. Um, technically, the valuation wasn't really overvalued last few years in Hong Kong it, we, because we have a very high liquidity in the market. The transaction always proved the right price of valuation. So it wasn't really overvalued too much. So the haircut from the bank non-profit loan is only maybe possibly 5 to 10%. And those institutional players, when they buy non-profit loan, is not really attractive because if you go to mainland China or somewhere else, you can get a haircut of like minus 30% to 50%. Oof. So I think keen interest in the market looking at the, that kind of opportunity, but again, the price matter. Mm. Nelson, are you getting uh, corporate clients coming around trying to see if there are any opportunities uh, from picking up some of these properties? Um, certainly, there are uh with the exception of maybe the last few months of last year, um, institutional investors have always been looking in, in the market, especially at a time when uh, there probably are some good opportunities to invest in. Um, uh, last few years, uh, the, a, a lot of industrial assets like warehouses and logistic facilities have been um, very uh, uh, hotly chased after by various uh, in, uh, institutional investors. Um, and uh, we, we also see, uh, despite the rather uh, down low market uh, in, in, in the fourth quarter, there were a couple of major transactions. And um, uh, uh, one of those is a, an, an office building in Kowloon Bay. Um, institutions um, just uh, uh, bought those assets at uh, somewhat of a deeper uh, haircut. Uh, but um, I, I, think, I think those are... Those are uh, uh, evidence that manifests the interest of institutional investors who look for uh, value for money. Yeah. Okay. So we're seeing some of the, some of these guys coming around. You know, full, full disclosure. Uh, I think a lot of listeners know my day job is connected to the industrial real estate uh, sector and specifically self storage. And and yeah, there have been institutional buyers coming in from outside of Hong Kong looking to, to get their hands on some of these. Um, Gary, do you do you see this as part of like creative destruction? In Hong Kong, if some pe some people are gonna are gonna take the hit, but does it create new opportunities or create uh, um, sectors of growth within the Hong Kong economy? I'm sure. Of course, I think if we look at it from at least uh, in the real estate, you know, perspective, right? Definitely. I mean, when the prices drop to a certain level, then it will att naturally attract you know buyers from you know elsewhere. Because I think at the end of the day, Hong Kong uh, needs 
be underperforming a lot of market in the last few years. But still, it is a kind of a stable developed market within Asia. So, and and it's also a market with very high liquidity. So therefore, I think um, it's normal to see you know uh, more investors returning to the city on seeking uh, not only residential but you know offices uh, on also industrial properties as um, uh, you have just discussed right now. So definitely, I think it will uh, still be a major uh, growth driver of Hong Kong in the long run. But of course, in the short run, there will still be some turbulence. We may start to see more transaction um, like um, in 2023 because of uh, Hong Kong's reopening. But still, um, I, I still think there will be a bit of challenges in growth um, like uh, basically this year. Gotcha. Uh, quick email before we go to the top of the hour from uh, some signs office. CW says there are still thousands of empty apartments owned by flat hoarders, including developers. The government's focus must be to making owning property more affordable for Hong Kong residents, not overseas investors. The notion of expecting mainlanders to support the Hong Kong property market is crazy. Uh, Hannah, I think you mentioned earlier the opening up of the border might have a positive impact. Uh, the CW, I guess, is trying to call you, call you out on it a little bit. Uh, do you have a quick comment before we go to the news? I think the, the market was keep talking about like uh, double stamp duty re- removal, etc. That's more favorable to the mainland buyers or the foreign buyers. So that's why I say we have to really focus on stamp duty, special stamp duty, which protecting domestic players. And also government um, put the last year budget uh, policy saying that there will be tax stamp duty refund if they stay in Hong Kong for seven years. But that's not really attractive. But I think as long as the talent, foreign talent to stay in Hong Kong more than two years, they can uh, get a benefit and that will not increase the speculation in the market. So, yes, I think domestic um, buyers should be the priority. Government should focus. All right. Very good. Well, thank you. Uh, we're going to continue this topic after the uh, news uh, with Nelson Wong from JLL Hong Kong, where he's the executive director of research. We also have Gary Ung, who's an economist with Natixis, and Hannah Jiang is the head of valuation advisory services at Collier's uh, right here in Hong Kong from Wan Chai. Uh, they're going to be back to talk about negative equity. We're also going to be talking later in the show about restaurants and other businesses refusing to serve people with COVID and if there is an issue of discrimination. A uh, quick hit on the weather, uh, mainly cloudy with sunny intervals, cool in the morning. I think we've got a nice weekend coming up, but windier, uh, with co- windier and cool with one or two rain patches over the next couple of days. By and large, pretty nice, although I think Friday is going to be the best of it. The temperature is now 17 degrees Celsius. It's 79% humidity. And it's a Janice Wong and Andrew Work here on Backchat. And we're back on Backchat on RTHK3. I'm Andrew Work uh, here with Janice Wong today. We've got three guests, and we are talking about uh, falling home prices and if people are getting into a negative equity situation. We're joined by Gary Ung, an economist at Nataxis, Hannah Jong, head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers, and Nelson Wong, executive director of research at JLL in Hong Kong. Uh, just before the break for the news, we heard from uh, uh, somebody who wrote an email, CW. And uh, he was not very expectant for outside buyers to be able to help prop up property prices. How much of an impact do they really have? Nelson Wong, I mean, how big an impact do outside buyers? We, we also heard recently that uh, 20% of Americans had left Hong Kong in the last couple of years. That was uh, from, the, from the U.S. consulate reported widely. Um, but we're expecting mainland professionals to come back. How much do they really impact the housing market? And is it just at the super high end or is it, you know, across the, the middle and lower ranges as well? I think if we look back at the, at the, the situation before the, all, all those uh, 
you know, extra stamp duties were imposed. Um, they did, um, I mean, outside uh, outsiders buying uh, properties in Hong Kong did make up a um, meaningful portion of of uh, buyers. Yeah, anywhere between you know fifteen twenty percent or so, maybe more sometimes, um, and uh, it spread across the different spectrums of properties, uh, residential, uh, from more mass to medium to very high end properties. Um, personally, I, I'm not too concerned about the high end property stuff because uh, those are not really. Um, uh, you know, was what most Hong Kong people are are concerned anyway, sure. um, I, I do agree that the, there is a, uh, a an effect in propping up the prices at the in those times. Um, but again, um, Hong Kong is a very open market, uh, a very open economy, and if we um, have too many regulations and 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 um, hindrances for foreigners to participate in this market, one way or the other, uh, that may not be as you know that may not be be, be good for for Hong Kong being an, an open and and um, fair market for all. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was walking down the hill a couple of years ago, Shosun Hill, and there was all these like dark houses. But I mean, there were houses. I'm never you know that is not my property market. That's for sure. But I mean, you know, he also said there were thousands of flats. I mean, how many flats are actually? He said there were thousands of flats that were vacant in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, we've heard accusations of this in other markets around the world. Are there really thousands? Like, is how many flats are are considered to be? Uh, unoccupied right now just because uh, the owners don't feel like renting them out. I mean, are there thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds? I don't know. There, there are about, um, uh, I, I don't have the, the actual figure on, on hand, but there are, according to our estimate, there are just about there are more than 10,000 uh, completed units um, uh, also. But uh, it's... Th- that are empty uh, or unsold. Yeah, uh, completed. Uh, and... Right. Um, uh, yeah, but that's across the the, the entire market, uh, out, and and if we think about the total stock in in Hong Kong, more than you know, just about one point five million square uh, units of private properties, you know, that's less than one percent. Um, so is is that too high a number? It's hard to tell, and yep. uh, also because of the fact that last year transactions was very very low especially in the primary primary market um so a lot of completed units were still on the market not sold but you know if if the if the situation improves somewhat this year that number can c- come down uh, rather quickly but i mean you say completed unsold it's, they were available for sale just nobody was buying uh, pretty much, and, okay. and and developers were you know trying trying not they were to, trying sell, to sell them. Yeah, yeah. At, so there's at this point, not because of hoarding, some kind of you not, know not so hoarding much hoarding. I in okay. my mind, I think it's also because of the fact that even if they want to sell, there may not be much um, by way of buyers anyway. There's no buyer. Gar- Gary Hanna, the accusation is hoarding by developers or people that are uh, deliberately keeping flats empty uh, for whatever reason. Is that do you, do you guys think that's a real problem or or is it maybe? Not so much a problem. I don't know. Gary, you want to take a crack at that? Um, yes, sure. So I think um, as there's quite an open and liquid uh, market as Hong Kong, right, it's hard for Hong Kong to actually implement similar policy as some of the other economies, such as the vacancy tax and etc. because I think at the end of the day, it's a small economy. So it's really about the demand on you know whether people want to uh, buy these properties and whether you know there's enough people to live in you know this, this, this unit. So I think um, the best solution is still to um, like enhance a better growth environment 
government as long as there's demand, then I think naturally, I mean, all this unit will be sold at a certain point, and I, I, like, I, and a lot of this unit will be filled by um, like people who who need it. But of course, um, in the past, we do see sometimes there's a tendency that uh, some developers may may decide that they want to hold the unit for a little bit because prices may you know rise further. But now, definitely, this is not the scenario that we are in because of this um, like changing uh, environment, whether it's geopolitics or, or, or basically interest rate and, 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 and etc. So I think as long as there is um, you know a stronger growth momentum, I, I don't see any uh, problem with um, like some of these issues that we may be having uh, right now. Yep, Hannah, hoarding problem, not a yeah, problem. Vac- yeah, vacancy tax was one of the hot topic 2018 and 2019, 20, and once the market start to softening down, then. Uh, that that has been sort of withdrawn. Um, vacancy tax, there are two issues. Whether it's a real vacant or is it intent to not sell from the market, right? right. So there are developers holding their units to meet the right price. That's concern. But given their, they also their balance sheet is building up, they have to relax, they have to release the units as quickly as possible to make a, maintain the healthy balance sheet. So mm. I think that concern is whether they are keeping it for meeting a right price or in, increase the price to the right timing. I think that has been um, diminished. So they try to sell as quickly as possible and giving more incentives or discounts in the mass market perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, whether people holding up, not releasing their units for the public, I think that also not the case given the high interest rate scenario right now. People want to rent it out as, um, as quickly as possible. I think that's the uh, that's the situation. So, holding a vacant vacant unit is not a key issue right now. But one thing I want to highlight is developers are putting a strategy on the sales. Instead of putting a price tag, they are putting a tender strategy. So, even small units below 20 million or 10 million, those mass market products, they still want to have a tender system. People come in and put the price and if it's matched, then they sell. If not, they don't match. That increases a lot of the cost in the market, and that is not really efficient for the mass market. Mm. It may work for over 100 million uh, apartments or houses, but it's not really for the mass market. And are, has the market gone from uh, being anxious to buy? Are they now lowballing these tenders, and so the, the tr- sale never gets triggered? I think there are two reasons. They, are, they want to show they are not slow sailors. So they, the developer want to show uh, we are not fail to sell, so that's why they want to hide those figures. So we are selling by tender, um, and uh, it's in progress. So that's one thing. And the second thing is yes, they they want to test the market instead of putting the price um, properly. Right. Uh, I've got an email here from uh, Doug, and he says, "Dear Backjack." I'm at a loss to understand the focus of today's discussion on home prices. Uh, Do we really want to lock Hong Kong into outrageously world-topping high house prices? Shouldn't we be seeking a significant fall in home prices to improve affordability? Um, Gary, you know, if house prices in Hong Kong fell 50%, could everybody then afford to get a place and affordability problems solved? Is is uh, Is that a good situation for Hong Kong? Well, I think the biggest problem is that I think Hong Kong has, has missed the golden chance to actually attain this uh, fast growth or ballooned um, property price that we have seen over the last 10 or, or 20 years. So right now, if we actually enter a scenario that, you know, a 50% of property price drop, that will have a spillover effect, not 
only on the financial stability because uh, I mean it will have an impact on the banking balance sheet, but also on the sentiment in terms of whether people think they have wealth or or, or basically uh, in consumption, etc. So I think um, right now, as in many other governments, the best way is really try to um, you know maintain a more stable path of uh, property price growth in the medium run. But in the case of Hong Kong, I think it should increase both uh, the land supply for private uh, side. But at the same time, also the public um, housing to enhance this uh, affordability issue because, I mean, uh, right now we're kind of locked in a scenario that the, uh, the affordability is not that great, obviously, on the global standard. But, I mean, I don't also think Hong Kong can afford a massive, um, uh, uh, like a property price drop because of the uh, well, macro uh, risk reasons. Yeah, I mean, I guess the prices drop, you know, say 75% to other cities, it's not like everybody would all of a sudden be able to move out of public housing into cheap flats. Um, uh, do you want us to give us a quick hit on that one, uh, Nelson? Yeah, um, uh, mind you, just about half of the people in Hong Kong are homeowners. And, you know, if, if prices fall 50 percent, the 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 owners half of the population will will be jumping uh, out of windows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not 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 necessarily so, but certainly you know making a lot of noises. Um, I I think the best way to uh, get out of this um, uh, dilemma in Hong Kong is um, let grow uh, let let the economy grow out of it, and hopefully prices don't rise faster than the economy grows. And to, for that to happen, we have to have abundant supply of properties, real estate of all kinds, really, but in this case, residential. Um, hopefully, we have, if we have enough supply, um, then, then prices, you know, the, the price growth trajectory is not going to be um, steep enough to, to overtake uh, economic growth. So that, that is a very long, long term and uh, a, a prolonged um, protracted way to to uh, improve the affordability of Hong Kong. Um, making price drop 50% overnight is probably a, a, you know, a pretty serious a dose of um, poison for, for Hong Kong, I'm, I'm afraid to say. You're, you're being very mild. I think it'd be a disaster, but <laughs> <laughs> we're asking your opinion. Um, email from uh, Alonzo. Uh, can your panel of experts remind listeners as to which anti-speculation measures are still in place? Do your experts believe it's just a matter of time before these are scrapped by government? Um, Alonzo, we, we had a lot of discussion on this in the first half of the show, but I will ask Hannah. Hannah, can you remind us very quickly, what are the three spicy taxes, the three special taxes the government imposed? Um, yep. So we, we, we have three stamp duties. One is the buyer's stamp duty and double stamp duty. That's, um, that's really preventing people to buy second home or uh, buying buying from the foreign entity to buying home. And right. we have a special stamp duty, which is uh, blocking sales within uh, two to three years. So if you, you don't sell within three years, then uh, that, that's a very minor tax. So mm. that's, a, the, that's the, the same duty that we are talking about in the market. Right. So you buy, you buy a second home, you pay more. You buy from out, you're from outside Hong Kong, you pay more. And if you sell it in three years, you pay more. Correct. Okay. And I, I, like I said, we talked about it in the first part of the show, but, uh, uh, and I think Nelson, you were, Nelson was pretty clear. He's like, I don't see them making any moves on those taxes now. Um, Hannah? 
you, you don't see them making any changes in the upcoming budget, do you? I know you've recommended it strongly in the first part of the show, but any changes expected? I think it, we really don't know. I mean, there were a number of noises from political side as well as the private side we, we are voicing out. Um, I think at this point, I think government will more focus on supply, especially the public housing. So they have a number of NDAs, new development, uh, new development areas, at the North Metropolis, such as Hong Shui-Kyu, Yunlong, uh, near uh, Kudong. So these area government try to put a lot of focus on the new supply of the uh, public housing. Um, I think the, the current crisis in terms of price, as I agree with the audience, is not really the big problem. I think having a minus 5 to 10% further adjustment, it can be more affordable for a lot of people. But then in your mind, the economy is also downturn. So your salary, our affordability is going down as well. So that, that's the one thing. But I think um, the, the work concern us from the private sector is really the transaction side. If the things doesn't move, that's the concern. Yeah. Um, there should be enough buyer and seller to give a, a reasonable price, and that, that will help the economy overall. And the activities, because I, I, my price has gone up 50% last 10 years or 20 years. Now I can get cash out and I can do more activities in the economy. But mm-hmm. that has been stopped because nobody knows what will happen in the near future. The government side is really the supply focus. Uh, public and private, and pro- public is their biggest um, con- focus, I think, going forward. Okay, I've got one last email from Jeff before we uh, wrap this up. He says, would increasing a property tax, uh, the rates on all flats, perhaps offset by a decrease in salaries tax, help to ensure that flats are not left vacant? It would make implementation easier than a vacancy tax with the problem of trying to ascertain which flats are genuinely vacant. Um, If we increase the the rates on, on flats, would that you know, force more people to rent them out if they were maybe holding out for, for higher rental prices? Nelson, what do you think? I'm, I'm not sure, um, you know, for individual uh, owners, I'm not sure that uh, there are that many um, owners who hold on to their, to their flats, uh, you know, b- because they, they, they're holding, hoping for a higher rents or, or, or higher price. Um, and in any case, if we look at the vacancy level of mass and and medium sized units you know, um they they are not high anyway mm. um probably the 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 uh, audience is talking about uh, developers who who have not sold their completed units um this is yeah uh, this amounts really to a, to a vacancy tax and um uh in my mind um i think developers are generally rather willing to sell especially their mass and medium-sized projects and you know it's really last year where the market sentiment was very poor when when that they they delayed a number of their block launches i'm i'm quite sure this year when the window comes back um they'll be a lot more active in 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 promoting the projects all right well thank you very much i'd like to thank everybody we got a lot of emails today that's great we love the engagement uh, from uh, all of our fans uh, of back chat out there around hong kong and around the world and also thanks to our producer for putting together a brilliant panel today that included Gary Ung, the economist from Natixis, Hannah Jong, head of valuation and advisory services at Colliers, and Nelson Wong, executive director of research at JLL. Thank you. You're listening to Backchat. 
Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Back on Back Chat, I'm Andrew Work here with Janice Wong, and uh, we're welcoming to the show the major domo of the Equal Opportunities Commission in Hong Kong, the chairman, Ricky Chu. Ricky, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Good, good morning, morning, Andrew. Ricky, uh, this is a bit of a peculiar situation uh-huh. that has arisen in Hong Kong. We uh, told restaurants they had to yeah. train their staff, use technology, use upgraded technology to keep people with COVID out of their restaurants. And uh-huh. now, if they do that, they're going to get in trouble. What is the situation? Well, um, because under the dis- Disability Discrimination Ordinance, it is specified that um, an act which uh, served by the service provider to refuse service on a customer on the grounds of the customer's uh, illness or disability uh, would be uh, deemed to be a discriminatory act and hence unlawful. And the criteria for deciding whether such an act um, is reasonable or necessary would depend on the overall circumstances of the uh, pandemic prevention environment and what measures are in place in, in, the, in the society. So um, this necessity and reasonableness test got to match the external environment. And we see that now Hong Kong uh, is relaxing its uh, social distancing rules because of the uh, new situations uh, with the pandemic, which is subsiding, uh, figures coming down, and uh, uh, people getting um, adequately vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what the measures which are deemed to used to be um, exempt from the law uh, as very stringent, may now be seen to be um, unreasonable or even unnecessary. So that's why recently, uh, after the government uh, announced that all COVID-confirmed uh, COVID uh, citizens can uh, freely go to uh, public places, to restaurants, clinics, etc., uh, there are discussions, and I understand the, uh, their worries. But then we have to clarify that if uh, restaurants and clinics and service providers continue to drive away uh, clients uh, which are COVID-confirmed, then there is a risk that they may, con- they may breach the law. Right. And Mr. Drew, I, yeah. I mean, I know you just um, issued a warning advising clinics and restaurants not to discriminate against people who are COVID-positive. Um, I mean, why, why, why did you do it um, at, at this time? Is it because you've been re- receiving complaints? Or you just um, concerned uh, in general? The thing is that uh, since the relaxation of the so, uh, social distancing rules, uh, we haven't actually received uh, any new complaints or inquiries uh, on this issue. So um, all, I, all I see is from the um, uh, journalists reporting that uh, there are uh, clinics or restaurants uh, adopting such an approach, but we haven't seen any actual cases yet. Right. So, so if um, restaurants or clinics do refuse uh, um, people who are COVID positive, what is the actual penalty for that? Well, um, it is not a criminal uh, case, actually. And the, any breach under the um, anti-discrimination ordinance uh, would be pursued along the, the civil line which means that if we receive a complaint and we will assess the merit and the circumstances of it, and where it warrants uh, 
the possible consequences at at most uh, would be that um, civil proceedings may be instituted against the service provider uh, on behalf of the uh, complainant if there are merits and and justification to do so. But it would be after a, a full scale uh, inquiry, of course, and our priority actually in handling such a situation would be to try to um, conciliate uh, between the two parties and see whether an agreement can be reached uh, without any further uh, legal proceeding. Right, because I mean, uh, there haven't been cases of people, you know, showing up the restaurant going, hi, I've got COVID, serve me, please. I mean, people don't do that, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, I I can understand the scenario, but actually I don't think uh, this would be a would be a reality or, or a common occurrence because, uh, well, technically, even if a person claimed that is COVID confirmed, if you want to scientifically verify that, it won't be that easy, isn't it? Previously, of course, we can rely on the uh, leave home safe apps or or certificates uh, from the medical petitioner, etc., etc., and we can re- also rely on the on the enactment of the law under, say, uh, CAP 599 in protecting uh, public health, that uh, that we are safe, we can safely uh, refuse service to COVID-confirmed uh, citizens because the law allows us to do so. But now the government has relaxed such uh, regulation, and and COVID-confirmed citizens can freely go to any places they want. So it would be harder or actually much harder for a service provider to justify driving away uh, COVID-confirmed citizens under the circumstances. I wouldn't say it is impossible because we, we need to look at an actual case to finally decide whether the refusal of service uh, is fully justified. Okay, so uh, perhaps a more plausible scenario. Let's say somebody's entered an employment contract, let's say short-term contract, like working on a big event for one or two days, uh, mm-hmm. and they show up and the employer's like, oh, you got to do a rat test right now. Oh, you are positive. Um, you can't work on this event, and I'm not going to pay you. Is, well, is, that, is that a scenario yeah. where, you know... If As it, I said, if you, you, simply, you simply rely on the, on the <laughs> assumption of fact that... Um, the customer is either temporarily or permanently uh, infected with a certain disease. Uh, How about an employee? This is this is where I'm talking about somebody saying I'm not, I'm not going to honor an employment contract because you know you've got COVID. Well, then uh, you may be subject of a of a complaint if the customer uh, so wish. The, the so employee actually the best or the pandemic uh, pragmatic course of action to take is try to you know express yourself, uh, tell the customer your your honest feeling of that. Okay. And see if you can reach an, an agreement, say an, or some alternative form of service, uh, some, some means to accommodate each other's needs. That would be the pragmatic course to do, rather than an outright refusal and then the people, uh, both parties are left in an unhappy or unsatisfied situation, resulting in a complaint uh, needing to be taken care of. All right. So, so Mr. Chu, from what you're saying, um, restaurant staff, they um, cannot refuse uh, COVID-positive patients from dining at their restaurant. But can they seat them in a segregated uh, part of the restaurant that's been uh, allocated uh, to COVID-positive customers? Is that okay? Well, uh, that's in theory better because you are not 
outright refusing to to serve a customer. But then uh, you can rely on, say, um, a split of uh, surface area. Like traditionally, uh, a lot of restaurants have uh, a smoking area, non-smoking area. Actually, in spirit, they are they are splitting the customers and offering uh, slightly different treatments. But provided that the the segregated area are more or less under the same surface condition, environment, etc., so it won't constitute a, a difference in treatment or significant difference. Then it would be easier for the service provider to justify his action. Right. It is a degree of accommodation. Right. But outright refusal would be deemed to be a very harsh treatment. Mm. And it would be more difficult to justify if your act is uh, more extreme. Are restaurant staff even allowed to ask customers if they are COVID positive? <laughs> I guess, um, well, you are free to ask anything, but whether or not the customer uh, will answer you uh, depend on uh, depend on each other's agreement, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it's okay to ask. But it's not okay to compel someone to to do so without justification. Hmm. And really, it's a met- it boils down to the key words: is whether your act is reasonable and necessary. Well, I have to go to the dentist later today, and I noticed for the first time in three years they haven't asked me to send in a photo of a negative rat test. They they haven't asked me to do that today, and they have for for some years. So maybe, uh, and that has been since this story is broken. So maybe. The mood is changing. Uh, thank you very much for coming in to discuss this with us today. Rick, Ricky Chu, Chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission. Great having you on the show. All right, I'd like to thank everybody who listened, called, and got in touch with us online today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Today's show was produced by Yuki Tsang, and our sound man today is Andy Kwok. Uh, back chat. We'll be back after the weekend. We're going to have Jim Gould and Mike Rouse lighting up the airwaves again. Quick hit on your weather. Mainly cloudy with sunny intervals. Cool in the morning. Maximum temperature around 20 degrees. Uh, over the weekend, it's going to be windier and cool with one or two rain patches over the next couple of days here on back chat in Hong Kong. The current temperature is 17 degrees Celsius and it's 77% humidity. Before making a booking at a guest house, remember to check if it has a valid license. Unlicensed guest houses may not comply with building and fire safety requirements. If there's an accident, you may not be covered by your insurance policy. To check the license number, you can visit the website of the Home Affairs Department's Office of the Licensing Authority website at hadla.gov.hk. Stay safe. Stay away from unlicensed guest houses. Time is 9.30, and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. Former Tourism Commissioner and Invest HK boss Mike Rowe.